Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism, and its associate fellowship, The Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about how God is using us to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, go to traincpe.org. And to learn more about our local church fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. I hope you can follow along today. We're building on our last lesson. In our last broadcast, we took up a technical consideration of the word translated propitiation in Romans 3.25. To propitiate means to placate or satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. We pointed out that that word that was translated propitiation is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, on at least 11 occasions, the mercy seat. Each of those times that is translated in this way, the definite article the comes before the word. It was before the mercy seat that once a year the high priest in Israel prayed that God would expiate, that is, that God would remove the sins of the people. And for this reason, many have argued that propitiation is not the right doctrine of the cross of Jesus Christ. They would tell us that Christ did not take on God's wrath because God is all love. Christ instead simply removed our sins. He expiated them. Today, we'll finish up this part of the message and seek to demonstrate the necessity of propitiating the wrath of God before God can expiate or remove our sins. You'll actually find that in some of our translations, I think it's in the Revised Standard Version, they will translate this word that we have propitiation in our verse here as expiation. Ah, this comes from the mercy seat. You see, you put the blood on the mercy seat and you pray, God atone, God remove, expiate, take away these sins. And so the argument then comes back, this verse doesn't mean propitiation. This verse and this word, hilasterion, means expiation. It's just praying that God would take away sins, that God would remove the guilt, that God would cover it. And the focus is not on God's judgment or God's wrath, but it's just focused on God removing our sins from us. I'm going to give you some answers for this. Here's a few of the things that you need to take into account that this idea, this notion, fails to take into account, I should say, and it's this. One, it doesn't take into account the context of Romans 3, verse 25, and we talked about this last week. By the time you come to Romans 3, verse 25, Paul has been spending two and a half chapters identifying sin, sin among the idolatrous pagans, sin among the moralizing Greeks, sin among the religious Jews, and that in every case, they reveal that, as Paul starts out, the wrath of God is being revealed against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness. You find that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So Paul is building a case that God's wrath and God's judgment is being poured out. And Paul will repeat this notion of wrath and judgment throughout these two and a half chapters until he comes to the very end of basically Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And there he makes the declaration as a result of all this, the accumulation and the presentation of all of our guilt and all of our sin. We're all guilty before God. We're all facing his just judgment. And then he says in verse 25, that God has provided a propitiation. God has provided a way to remove this righteous wrath and this righteous judgment. Those who just want to argue this, just taking away our sins because God is not really angry at our sins. That's some notion that belongs into some pagan past. Don't take into account the context in which Paul is speaking. 
The next thing is they fail to take into account that Paul is writing to Gentiles for the most part. And these are individuals who know nothing of the technical features of Judaism and their worship in the temple. And for these Gentiles, the common, in fact, the only usage for the idea of this word hilasterion is to propitiate or placate an angry God. And, and in this passage, by the way, the definite article is not used. It's not like it's in the Septuagint. Whenever the definite article is used, the, it always meant the mercy seat. But the definite article is not there. It's just a word that stands for a propitiation for an angry God. And so that's how they would have understood it. Again, those making this argument that this is really about expiation, just taking our sins away, fail to understand that even in the Septuagint, that's that version of the Old Testament that was written in the Greek, and in the writings of the Jewish community like Josephus during the time in which Paul was writing, and even in other places in the New Testament, this word or words that share basically common roots are very often used, most often used to mean placate or to propitiate wrath. So you have an example in Genesis chapter 32, you have Jacob who's going back to visit his brother Esau. He's a little concerned because the last time he was near Esau, he was running from him because Esau had sworn that he was going to kill him. And now Jacob has made his own life and he's bringing his family back. And we're told that Jacob sends gifts to Esau in order to, hilasterion, in order to propitiate his brother's anger. So his brother would not be angry at him anymore. And in Numbers chapter 16, you have an account where the people of Israel have sinned against God and God is bringing judgment and disease and death upon the people. Moses and Aaron make an offering before the door of the tabernacle in order to placate the wrath of God against the people. And that's the way the word is used in that context. And I could give you some examples of this in the New Testament as well. And so it's not as though the word only and always means mercy seat in which through a process of thinking about it can be extrapolated to mean expiation. But let's go back to that Day of Atonement for a moment. Let's go back to the Day of Atonement when the priest does take the blood that's been sacrificed and brings it into the most holy place and he pours that blood out upon the mercy seat and there he prays that God would take away the guilt of the people, that God would expiate or there would be expiation which their guilt would be removed and there would be an atonement made for the guilt of their sin. And just remember this, that before the guilt of that sin could be removed, it had to be paid for. This priest still had to lay his hand upon the sacrifice representing all the nation of Israel, doing what all the individuals of Israel had done throughout the year, putting their hand on the various sacrifices they brought. And the sacrifice in their place for their sins still had to be put to death and then laid upon the brazen altar. And then the blood corrected and much of the blood poured at the base of the brazen altar and the rest of the blood brought in and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. In other words, propitiation had to take place. God's just anger against sin had to be met before a cry could say, oh God now, remove the guilt and the claim of the sin against them because the payment's been made. God, expiate, remove, atone the sin because you've been propitiated. Your righteous judgment and wrath has been propitiated. That's what had to happen. These are not in contrast to one another. They don't go against one another. They complement one another and they're best understood together and so there is propitiation. In the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in which God's anger is satisfied, there is also expiation because God's justice is met, where my guilt and my sin can be removed and I can be forgiven. That's why Dr. David Wells says this. I think it's a wonderful quote. 
God is propitiated and sin is expiated. And Dr. David Wells describes it this way. God can now look on man without displeasure. And man can now look on God without fear. God is propitiated. He can look on me and take pleasure in me. My sin is removed. My guilt is removed and it's taken away and it's covered. And now I can come before God with no fear of reprisal, but only to enjoy him. Now this brings to us a question that we need to try to answer here. The real question is, what part does blood play in this transaction? Because our passage says it is a propitiation through his blood. Why was blood necessary to propitiate the wrath of God and to expiate or take away the guilt of my sins? Why is it that blood is called for? In this verse we see that it's faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that appropriates for a person or gains for a person the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins. The blood also, and faith in that blood, that allows God to justly justify the sinner or to righteously make righteous the unrighteous. That is to be propitiated. It's blood that satisfies God's justice, but that blood also works to expiate or remove the sin. And so we've sang about this in many of the songs we sang this morning. Most of the songs, by the way, in the hymn book that you sing about the blood of Jesus Christ are really singing about its expiatory effect, its ability to cover us and cleanse us and watch us. So in 1 John 1, 7, on this idea of removing sin, we are told that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. It satisfies and propitiates God, and it cleanses us. And the question is, why? Why is it the blood is an answer to these things? And by the way, I don't know. We come to church all the time. We're used to singing these songs. And if you've grown up in a church community, you've heard these songs put in. There was a time in the 80s when people tried to think, you know, this doesn't really work really well. We're trying to attract as many people as possible. And you'll find, if you go back and find some of the songs that were written in the 80s, the criticism of the songs of the church in the 80s is that they were bloodless. They just took away all references to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. And they were just all praise and good times and kind of Pollyannish songs in which we sang about how happy we were that God loved us so much. The history of the church is we sing these songs about the blood of Jesus Christ. And we sing them without even actually, you know, thinking that it sounds odd. But to a modern person who steps in who's never heard this stuff, this is strange, Right? They didn't grow up on a farm where they saw that life basically was sustained by the shedding of the blood. You know, hospitals have removed us from the way in which blood plays a feature and a work in sustaining life. And we don't see those things. We have somewhat of an antiseptic life where we don't see all that stuff. But the generation that received these words and understood these things didn't have a problem grasping the understanding of the significance and importance of blood providing for God to be propitiated and us to find life and freedom before God. They understood that because the whole testament of the temple and the sacrifices that are made of the temple, and of course we read this just in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, and we saw this Passover feast that took place in which thousands of sacrifices were made in one day. Think of the blood that was flowing. It wouldn't have been difficult for them to associate that with one another. So we're going to sing a song at the end of our service. Think about this. I had a fellow tell me this when I was in seminary that he can't sing the song because it's too awful a song, but it doesn't bother me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's kind of a gruesome picture. We're going to sing it anyhow because it's a wonderful truth behind it, that God has given his life. So what does all this mean? What's the purpose of this? Why were bloody sacrifices offered in the temple from sun? rise to sundown. Well, we're going to talk about these things. I'm going to give you an answer for why blood. And, and to do this, 
for a moment, I, I kind of want to go back and consider an extra biblical example of this. The kind of set for you an understanding that would have basically been settled over the world by the time we have the scriptures written before us. It would have been an understanding that informed the classic Romans. It would have been an understanding that would have informed Abraham and Moses when he wrote this text. The prophets who wrote, the apostles who spoke, they all would have been steeped in a sense in an understanding of these rituals. And it's the ritual of blood covenants. And if you were to go back into any society and trace it back to its origin and to its ancestry, you would find it in the ancestry of any society, it is rich with this notion that covenants that individuals made to one another were made on the basis of blood. So if an individual, in a sense, wanted to come before people and he wanted to attest to some truth, or he wanted to tell them some grand bit of information they needed to know, and there was a question as to his veracity, he would take lancet and he would cut his forearm and he would raise his arm to heaven. And as the blood flowed down from his arm, he would tell them his truth. And he'd make his profession. The blood flowing down his arm said, look, I'm staking my life on it because that's really what the blood meant. The life was in the blood. May my life be poured out. May my life be forfeited if I am not telling you what is true. So that's what he's doing. That's what he's making. That's the pledge he's making. And this is the same whenever they make... We'll answer in our next broadcast the question, why blood? Why did our salvation require the blood of Jesus Christ? Without knowing all the answers, we know that what Jesus gave was his precious life in death for our atrocious sins. Thank him for that. And thank you for joining us at the Bread of Life, where we gather to feast on God's Word. If these messages are feeding your soul, let us know. Go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links to contact us with a message of encouragement. Until the next time, may God bless you.